I'm Jason Thomas. Welcome to the Hardway MBA, where we empower ambitious corporate professionals. That's you, right? With real-world business knowledge. We interview business leaders who are gracious enough to share their strategic insights and tactical activities to improve your business and career. If you enjoy these interviews, please spread the word because nothing says thank you as well as a referral to your friends and colleagues. Now let's dive in. Welcome, welcome, folks. Jason Thomas with another episode of the Hardway MBA. I'm very excited to in- introduce you to a, a good friend of mine, a mentor, uh, a former boss, although I never really thought about him that way. Uh, Mark Richmond is a president of Skeleton Key. And Mark, why don't you uh, tell us what you do in one sentence? Uh, in one sentence, um, I am the president of Skeleton Key and BrightSource IT, a pair of companies that provide um, uh, custom software development on one side and managed services on the other. And I'm primarily uh, the leader of a team of very smart people who make me look good. <laughs> That's awesome. And it, Mark is, uh, I'm excited to bring to bring Mark to this forum because he, he has a lot to say about business. And I have always admired the kind of the, the way he handles his business and the way he deals with it in a, a uh, the way he deals with it in within a personal context, I guess. So uh, Mark challenged me. You guys should know Mark and I go way back and we've known each other for six, seven years now, I guess. Um, and uh, whether whether it was a good decision or not, Mark hired me as uh, the first salesperson at, at Skeleton Key. And I won't ask you if that's a good decision because I don't want that recorded on the record. Um, <laughs> um, but uh Mark challenged me before we started to dig into areas that I don't necessarily know about him or about the business. So I'm going to do my best to do that and uh, just wanted to put that challenge out there so everyone's aware of it, Mark. Great. So the I, I kind of want to start and get get a level set for the audience so they can, you know, whether I'm digging into to things I don't know or not, kind of understanding where we're coming from here, you know, Talk to us a little bit about what Skeleton Key and BrightSource IT do and kind of where you came from and how those businesses started. So I'm a reluctant businessman. I um, I come from New York originally. I was from Westchester County, the first county north of the city, sort of a New England boy, uh, born and raised. And when I was 28, I moved to St. Louis um, uh, with my um, now ex-wife so she could attend WashU and go for a couple of uh, master degrees. And uh, and uh, and along the way, you know, we, we separated and, and split up and I remained here in St. Louis. I was an independent software developer at the time. Um, I was a general IT consultant and strategist. Um, I had taken a position with a local company to just kind of make ends meet and provide some stability while she was in law school and social work school. Um, but uh, it became clear to me that I was, you know... Um, I, I was much happier working for myself. I had done that on and off for the years back in, in New England and had worked for some some large companies. And at the same time, I'd always left and go back to work for myself. Just felt more comfortable working directly with clients and not having all the extra um, baggage that came along with the hierarchy or rules of, of being in a larger business. Um, but long story short, I kind of decided it was maybe time for me to do my own thing on a larger scale. Maybe I needed to bring a couple of developers, 1099s or full-time employees on board and absorb some of the business I was um, attracting, but that I wasn't able to accommodate. And 
Somewhere along the way, I ran into Oliver Block, um, my business partner. Um, Oliver and I kept getting introduced to each other for every reason except the fact that he was also from New York. It was just sort of um, coincidental. We kept getting introduced to each other for this reason or another. And eventually, I introduced him to a client that he went to work for in the IT space. And of all the people I knew in town who I felt was going to be a good match for me um, in terms of balancing out and providing some, uh, you know, a good balance, I guess, to my style or a good debate partner when it came to making decisions or just someone I could rely on when the going got tough and we needed more hands on deck. Oliver was the obvious choice. And so I persuaded him to um, leave his position and join me to start Skeleton Key. And that was back in 2002 slash 2004, which is sort of when we did our all initial business planning, you know, borrowing um, and kind of launching of the, the company. And we did not know anything about business at all. Um, we both knew how to balance a checkbook. We both had pretty good credit. Uh, we both knew how to do the technical work. Um, we both had, I think, the right attitude about how to collaborate and how to be fair with each other and with clients. And um, there was no politics or fighting. Uh, there was no arguing or raised voices. We really just looked at what we were doing was solving problems for people. And if we did so as best we could, it was billable work. And um, but we had no marketing expertise, no financial literacy. We had nothing that a business needs to succeed uh, on a regular basis. And so we kind of bootstrapped our way along for a while. Um, fast forward, we learned, we lost a lot of money. Um, we learned a lot of lessons. Um, along the way, at some point, we rebranded the IT division as we grew to provide sort of a clearer sense of what that organization did versus what Skeleton Key did building software. And, um, and learned, you know, just a whole lot uh, along the way from a lot of people, often from just a lot of mistakes um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and just to kind of come full circle. It was absolutely a good idea to hire you for that sales position. Um, you know, uh, I said not to put that on the record. I know, but it is on the record because really, I mean, as, as we're going to eventually talk about, I'm sure, along the way here, amongst the many things that we have evolved and developed over the years, our sales process, which you helped hammer out, you know, from the raw ore that it was into a fine tool that was, you know, absolutely your baby. And uh, it's something that we have continued to refine and polish, but it's something that we lean on heavily and something that, um, you know, prospects uh, appreciate and frequently tell us and something that even people in our industry and in our community, when I talk at, you know, conferences about, growing our business, which I just did this summer at a developer conference, you know, a lot of people who were attracted to me afterwards to talk about it specifically honed in on having a sales process, having a method to that madness and, um, and how valuable that was. And I really attribute that even I think during the session to your efforts while you were with us to help, help hammer that out and sort of lay the path that I could then follow. Well, I appreciate that. So uh, as you're, and I'm going to cut the, the love fest short a little bit though. The uh, I, I do appreciate it. But so as you're talking there, um, I want to go back to the, one of the very beginning portions of your your commentary there, and being born and raised in New York, and Oliver also coming from New York. Uh, you guys didn't know each other back there, right? That's what I recall. Nope. Um, well, what do you think about as a founder, as an origin story? Uh, what is New? How does New York matter? Why does I mean, you, you brought it up. Why does being in New York and growing up there, does that translate to something that's happening or uh, the way you guys work together? Or does that have a, a significance or a meaning to you? That's a great question. I don't think I don't you know, I don't think it has any meaning as in we brought something special with us, some secret sauce or spice you can't buy anywhere that made <laughs> us what we are. Um, 
it, often, in fact, people are surprised, at least for me, I don't know how often this happens to Oliver, that I have no accent or anything. I, mean, I wasn't in the city and he wasn't, he was in Queens, but still, um, you know, that there's nothing about our style or behavior that seems New Yorkish. Um, I think what it for me means more than anything is that we are not from here. So, you know, we're, we're a couple of guys who um, came here on different paths for different reasons. Um, and for whatever reason, have seem to have been cut from a similar kind of cloth. There's certainly many differences about Oliver and I and when you compare us to each other in terms of, um, you know, and, and, and a number of similarities. You know, we're different ages. We had slightly different experiences in the world. Certainly the city living for him was very different than mine. His family is a, is a whole different kind of cohesiveness than mine, which is sort of distributed and spread out, et cetera. But, um, and different educational paths too. I think it's more that something about us both being from outside, coming here maybe semi-reluctantly, not even sure if we wanted to stick around, but um, for different reasons for both of us um, found a home here. And, um, and so there's something about that part of the story, this sort of being outsiders and strangers and then finding a home and settling in and feeling welcomed by this town and the community. And then finding each other and then just having that kind of surprise um, background that was, you know, similar, but by no means identical in any way. Just we kind of had some commonalities, but that was it. Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever wrote of run into each other. You know, I, I have a best friend I've had since I was a fourth grade. And, you know, he and I discovered one day in sixth grade that we actually were in preschool together. And it was sort of like a magic moment when we saw the photo <laughs> of the preschool. And I was in the photo and it was his photo. And we were like shocked because it was like our origin story began earlier. There's been nothing like that for Oliver and I. We've never right. found that we crossed paths back in the day. Um, but I don't know whether or not something about coming from there changed the way we are. I mean, I think that the stereotype for New Yorkers is that they're brash and harsh and, and blunt and all kinds of negative stereotypes. And um, and I don't think that's my perception of it, but I think that's the way that people often consider that they would be, you know, that you're not going to get as many friendly smiles and doors open for you and other kinds of assistance. In my experience, maybe, if anything, I found that there's less guile in um, in people from, you know, my neck of the woods, that they mm -hmm. speak their minds directly. And they don't necessarily have to be rude in doing that. They can just be direct. There's very little. Um, I like to say that I don't I don't play poker so well. I tend to lead with my bottom line. And um Oliver is certainly a better negotiator than I am. He, he doesn't necessarily do that. But um, there was something about our cutting to the chase and cutting to the mustard or whatever you know, cliche you want to use that I think allowed us to communicate effectively with each other as mm -hmm. well as with clients and with, with teammates and, and our employees. So uh, for folks that don't know, St. Louis is an interesting town and you should come visit and see how many people ask you uh, where you go to high school. So the idea of being an outsider uh, in this town, and I, I don't know a lot of other Midwestern cities, uh, but the idea of being an outsider here is a little bit different than elsewhere, I believe. Um, that's my belief anyway. Um, that outsider nature, I mean, that you, you, you said that word that's kind of come up. Do you, do you identify with that? Does that? Do you feel like an outsider in uh, more than just, hey, I'm from New York and now I'm in St. Louis? I don't think so. Um, no more than I felt like an outsider at, you know, college or in, in, in um, mm -hmm. boarding school or, you know, in my jobs in Connecticut and so on. Um, someone the other day described something. I think someone was talking to my wife and um, it was like a, her best friend's husband. And I wasn't there. She went, she went up there for a birthday in Chicago and he was talking about me for some reason. I wasn't there. And he said to her something like, you know, one of the things I like about Mark is that he's always consistently the same guy. When you meet him and see him, 
Um, and I'm not used to talking about myself in the third person, but it really struck me as something that I think describes how I see myself, which is mm -hmm. that I tend to, I tend to, I tend to characterize it when I look in the mirror in the morning, I see a 13 year old kid that I've always seen in the mirror and um, I don't feel 47 or that I'm, you know, where I am or what I've done or that I have kids or that I'm married or I run a business. None of these things really click. I still see this 13 year old kid and in some ways I feel like an imposter or a pretender. Um, and you can look at my you can look at my office. I've got, you know, I still read the Sunday comics or the daily comics. My kids read them and then they put them in a stack for me. I still have cutouts of interesting, you know, articles or funny images that I see in a in a magazine that sort of appealed to me and I've been gathering that kind of stuff since I was a kid and it's really no different in many ways. So for me, I think it's I feel the same like I've always felt and I think some people perceive that, that I am consistent and uniform. I don't go through these major swings in, of personality or change. And so for me, it just feels like I brought the the Mark Parade to St. Louis, and it was supposed to be a five-year tour, and it turned into a 20-plus, I don't think it'll ever end kind of tour. Right. Um, but it hasn't made me feel um, separate from the town. And in fact, one thing that's really fascinating about St. Louis is even though you get here and you kind of get that question and you never know what to answer because people don't know your high school and you become clean, keenly aware of all the things that make St. Louis unique in terms of like how many little cities there are all clustered together mm -hmm. with their own police departments and all the different layers of schools, private and parochial and public and so on. And um, within a few years of being here, you invariably start to realize how small a town it is. It's two to four million strong in the MSA and out and beyond. Right. But you still end up finding yourself running into people who know people who know people you know. This whole six degrees of separation becomes like a three degree separation Man. in St. Louis. And you don't have to be from here to have that happen. Um, you know, it just starts to happen. And, uh, and it happens at a, from an accelerated pace. I mean, literally, the guy who trains me at the gym took a new position, and uh, his boss is going to be this guy who happens to actually used to know Sally back in the day when she was – and he was, used to date one of her friends. It was like, how could that have ever happened? That's like me to my trainer to his new boss, back to Sally's you know, uh, young adulthood, like to her friend. It's just – that's the right. kind of town it is. you know. Yeah. So I'm very interested to talk about this 13-year-old kid. Um, and, and I told you before we don't edit. So if you, if you get weirded out by this, we'll, we'll change directions. But um, tell me more about the 13-year-old kid you see in the mirror. Hmm. Where was I? 13 was a pretty big transitional time. Um, it's kind of timely, this topic. Um, I, in 13, I was living with my mother and my stepfather. And 13 is when I moved to go live with my dad. Um, so they were divorced when I was two. Um, my dad, both my, my dad and my stepfather were, um, you know, entrepreneurs or in the, in the sense that my dad ran the family business, but he was basically it um, in insurance. And my uh, stepfather um, uh, had a very successful car uh, um, dealership and I guess um, did fleet sales for GM to a lot of the rental companies and sort of pioneered that new business um, uh, in New York. So I had two very strong role models um, in both my father and my stepfather, but I was struggling with the authorities in each case. And I thought jumping from one ship to the other from my permanent resident would somehow impact that. Um, that also sort of triggered the time in my life when I moved very next year to go to um, uh, to go to boarding school, to a Quaker boarding school. It was clear that moving from one suburban community to another and changing from one school system to another, that it was a downgrade. Um, and I didn't feel challenged at all. And even though I didn't push myself very hard in school, it was obviously like I could literally sleep and get the job done. And so um, I, when I 
when I mentioned that to my, my dad and, um, and as I was unsettled in that new um, residence with my sisters and my stepmother and everything like that, we, they found sort of last minute an opportunity for me to go to a, a Quaker school in Pennsylvania. And, um, and that was a huge change. I'd been to camp before, but I'd never really stayed away from home for school before. And this was a co-ed uh, Quaker boarding school as opposed to a, um, you know, a, a all boys camp, which is what I did in the summers, you know, up in, mm-hmm. in New England. So um, 13 was sort of this key point where like I was sort of deciding to leave one home and go to another. So it was definitely this sense of independence that was really different than I'd ever had before because I was packing up my stuff and moving, even though I was moving from family to family, from, you know, mother to father, it was still sort of a, um, a self-awareness that was unique. Um, and, and also a sense that I wasn't finding in either my father or my stepfather all the role models I was looking for um, when it came to all aspects of being a man. They, they definitely had a lot of valuable lessons and things that they gave to me, but there were things about them that were sort of challenging for me to accept. And, um, and that could have been standard 13-year-old stuff. That could have been other things. But I, I found a number of, of, um, of role models in the um, in members of the faculty or members, members of the, you know, the teaching community at the schools I went to subsequently, both that the boarding school and subsequently at college and so on. So I, I kind of think it was an inflection point for me on role models. I went from sort of mm-hmm. the parent role models with all the complexity, good and bad, that comes along with that kind of baggage to um, role models in the world in the teaching capacity and, and subsequently in a, um, in a, you know, I guess a business or kind of um, working capacity that were not my parents and um, which I could approach independent of age, independent of any other kinds. Of, even if I wasn't in their class, there was an opportunity for me to, to form bonds with and learn from people who didn't have the baggage that came with parentage. So I, I guess that's from, I'm guessing now I'm just kind of spitballing, but yeah, the reason I think I see myself back then is because I think that's when I kind of started to know who I was um, mm-hmm. more clearly. And I don't think I've seen, I've aggregated, I've acquired and accreted a, a, a whole bunch of, stuff on top of that core person since then. Um, but I still sense that sort of that uh, stone in the middle, you know, right. the sort of initial piece that of sand around which the pearl that is me formed. <laughs> <laughs> so as you, as you think through that, uh, what pieces of what pieces of what you do today, the, whether it's, you know, actual tasks you will do today or the way you think about your business well, what kind of those things do you, as you were kind of meandering through there, what, how do you trace those back? Do you see the the way Skeleton Key and Bright Source operate today or the way you think about them in that 13-year-old somehow? I think uh, the thing that I, I most commonly associate in my head with um, how we operate today probably starts with the first real work I did outside of like, you know, putting up fences and and doing other kinds of construction stuff around my house, my, my dad's place. We had horses and there was fences and all kinds of work and stuff to be built. But for me, it, it really started with um, when I first got interested in the theater, in technical theater. Um, when I went to that Quaker boarding school, so what I, I would have been 14 or so when I first got there as a f- sophomore. Um, I think that's right, 14, 15. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went with a friend to the theater and um, I'd never been down to the theater before. I really, you know, that backstage at like elementary school was nothing. It was a big switch, you know, but in this theater, there were lights and there was 
curtains and there was a scrim and there was all these other pieces. I knew nothing about them. And I just went in to grab a wrench because I knew tools and to help hang some lights. And I was up there in the heated catwalks doing that thing. And there was this guy on the stage, um, uh, Scott Hoskins, whose birthday it actually is today. And he was um, directing us, telling us where to put the lights. And he was the technical director at that point. I think now he's sort of the runs the drama department there and does a lot more. But back then he was primarily focused on the technical piece of the theater department at this boarding school. And um and that was it. I was there as like as an add-on to someone who was already in the theater department and doing stuff then. I was just sort of there for like labor for the day. But it instantly clicked with me. And I spent the next three years aggressively working in that theater department on shows and getting to know Scott and uh, both as a mentor and a friend as well as a teacher. And then um, subsequently went into theater when I went into college and did a theater and architecture degree and et cetera. And of course, ended up in IT, right? But for me, I think the point was when it comes back to their business is that the things the theater taught me as someone working on the technical side of things, and I did a lot of work in technical direction and production management, was things I repeat often to people when I'm interviewing them for jobs here, which is that, and, I, and this is a quote I, I acquired from someone in St. Louis, but I think it goes all the way back to the way that theater works. Um, you know, all of us is smarter than one of us. It's not one singular prima donna designer or lighting designer or master electrician or someone that makes a show go on. It takes a team of people. Um, the curtain goes up at eight o'clock on Friday, ready or not. So basically the, the dress rehearsal and all these other things that you do to practice for six weeks or eight weeks before a show goes on are great, but there's nothing that can stop that curtain from opening at eight o'clock on Friday night when the show goes live. People have tickets, they're sitting in the audience. It's happening. You know, that's why there's understudies. That's why there's backup plans. Um, and I've certainly done enough live theater sitting up in the booth running the show when a light board goes out, realizing that like you've got a 300 people in the audience wondering what the heck's going on. So there's no second, wait a second, slow down kind of thing. So in many ways, business is like that too. When you make a promise to someone or you have a deadline or you have something that has to get done, it's really hard to, you know, I mean, it's easier in the real world to say, I need another day or I apologize. I need to do this tomorrow because I'm not ready. But in many ways, um, you know, the sense of what a deadline is um, kind of came from there. So teamwork and yeah. deadlines. And the other one was budgets. Um, even though I never paid attention to them when I started my business. And that's one of the reasons we lost a lot of money, but pay attention to them very aggressively now. Um, in student theater in particular, you have X dollars. And whether you got those X dollars granted to you from the student union or whether you went out there and did a bake sale or washed cars, that's all the money you've got to put on the show. And so you learn how to get it done with that money. You don't learn a lot of that other stuff too, like how to barter and how to borrow and how to beg to get things or how to reuse and recycle things. Because if you can get this guy at this store to give you that thing that he looks at as garbage, but you look at it as like the new prop that you're going to use in your show, you just saved your budget 20 bucks. Right. And there's no extra money. You don't have any money as a student. So there's no way you're going to fund the show yourself. You're going to put it up with spitballs and vinegar and you're going to get it done. So um, I, think, I think that sense of working with a team, working on a deadline and working with a budget um, all sort of were sort of born then and have carried through. And I, when I look at the team here, I still think the same thing. Like there's no one individual person that gets it done here. We all get it done. Whether you're the person answering the phones or taking that first you know, meeting with a new prospect, or you're the person who's finalizing it and billing them at the very end of the process and making sure that they you know, pay their bill. It's all part of the same machine that gets it done to make sure that we're here tomorrow to do it again for the next people or to do it again for the same client who comes back looking for the round two. And we all have to keep our eye on the budget because money doesn't grow on trees. You have to find a way to you know, work within the money you're going to earn or that you saved. And you have to be ingenious and inventive to make that happen. And you have to be vigilant to stay on top of it. Um, 
And then deadlines, you know, um, certain things, end of the month, end of this week, um, a deliverable that you promised to a client, you know, even though there's a little bit more flexibility and wiggle room, um, there's only so much rope you can ask for before you've hung yourself. And so um, you have to constantly be juggling priorities and trying to figure out a way to be ready to open at eight o'clock on Friday when the curtain goes up. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I could unpack all three of those team deadline and budget with you, probably each one of them for 20 minutes. But the one I, I'd like to focus on a little bit um, in the few minutes we have left is team. And they, they might open up deadline and budget some too, but I know that the way you run your business and uh, is around this open book management philosophy. And, you know, I'll put some, some links in the show notes to give people the, the bare bones basics of what open book management means and Jack Stack's books and, and some of these kind of things. So if you're really interested in open book management and you want the, the deep dive, I won't ask Mark to do that for you. But I, I am curious how you see this. You know, uh, one of us is, or all of us is smarter than any one of us and how that plays into the open book management concept and how you guys are, you know, how are you making that happen like at a very tactical level? How are you hiring based on those kind of things? How are you, I don't know, making decisions about letting people go on those kind of things? So we try to be cautious about who we hire. Um, I think another cliche out there is, you know, Hire slowly, fire quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and so um, that means we involve a number of different people in the hiring process. Um, and we've acquired various steps along the way. You know, we do some some testing and um, and then we do some interviewing and some peer interviewing um, to provide, you know, an opportunity for the people who will be working together to, mm -hmm. you know, share questions and answers. And it also is a great way for, you know, if we've talked to a candidate and told them how things run here and told them about, hey, we don't have politics here. There's no backstabbing. You know, we weed that stuff out. Um, this culture is kind of set by the way Mark and Oliver interact. And that doesn't involve yelling and finger pointing. And, um, and a lot of people come from businesses where that's just the norm. You know, mo a lot of business in our country and probably the world is um, is toxic. You know, the, the business environments can be toxic. They're command and control. They're, um, you know, there's a lot of um, you know, politics or, you know, um, I guess uh, pride invested in people's positions. Mm -hmm. And we really focus more on trying to figure out who's the right person to be doing this. And is it me or should it be someone else? And where are people's strengths lying and how much capacity do people really have to get it done right? And as opposed to like holding on to things because there are little fiefdom that we have yeah. to control. So, and so we tell people these things, but we, then we, they get a chance to, you know, interview with a a potential future co-employee and they get to say, so how is it really working here? You know, Mark says it's like all, you know, peaches and cream. Like, is it really that nice here? Like, are people really that non-political or have you seen that what he said is just kind of fluff, but it really isn't the truth. And so they get a chance not just to be interviewed by the employee, but to interview the employee to see if the story we're telling about what it's like to work here is in fact the truth. Does that put more pressure on your team members? I don't think so. I think one thing that I, I pride myself on is that I don't think anybody here feels like they ever have to um, second guess themselves on what they can say to a client or to a prospective employee or to a vendor. Um, we've, we really worked hard to make people feel like they, um, you know, we trust them. We trust them to make the right choice, to say the right thing. And if they make a mistake, which we all have done. And I usually start by laying all my mistakes. And during orientation, I, I lay all the mistakes I made in the early years of Skeleton Key right in the table in front of one and say, here's how I drove us right into a sandbar. And here's what I put in front of everybody in 2009 when I said, here's how bad it is. What are we going to do about it? 
because I can't fix this by myself. Mm-hmm. And so I think we encourage people to go ahead and take risks and and speak their mind. And we do that in various ways by identifying what they think should be billable or negotiating what isn't non-billable or um, uh, talking to clients and deciding where they should or shouldn't uh, mark something up or mark something down or, you know, escalating with a vendor if they're not happy. And we back them up. And even when a client has a fair dispute or complaint, even if they feel that one of our people did something wrong or could have done something better, um, we aim to kind of defend the employee at the same time as, you know, acknowledging the frustrations or struggle that the client's going through. I never want to throw anyone under the bus. And um, so I think it's a bit of a give and take. I I don't know that I, I don't think we put inordinate pressure on them because I think we back them up. Um, And when they make a mistake, we're very super candid and critical directly to them, to their face, to give them an opportunity to understand what we can do better next time. We tell people around here when they're getting hired, you got to have thick skin because you will get criticism and it will always be criticism trying to make things better. It will never be criticism trying to cut you down. And um, and so, you know, I think most people would say that's exactly what they've gotten. When they get criticism, they can debate it and discuss it, but it's usually fair and it's never mean or personal. Right. So you mentioned so our time is drawing short and right. you mentioned something that I cannot let go uh, for in part for my audience and in part because I, I, I have some questions, too. So I know you've got a hard stop in a few minutes. Uh, so we'll respect that. At the same time, I'm going to I'm going to open a can of worms that we may have to come back to. OK, um, uh, so you talked about 2009 in the context of pressure on employees. Um, so as an employee sitting in uh, a particular meeting that turned out to be an inflection point in my life, um, there was a ton of pressure on employees <laughs> that meeting. And I know you remember the meeting where you said, hey, this is where we sit. What are we going to do? Um, and, you know, I, as an inflection point in my life, I'll never forget it because it it changed the way I think about business. It changed a lot of things that I do. So it, the the backstory there is is I know we've we've touched on it here and there, but things were not going so well. I, we don't need to get into the details of that necessarily. But I'm curious about the the decision to come to your employees. And there were nine, 10, 11, 12 of us at that point and put all of that on the table. And have that moment of whatever that was for you, what was that for you? I mean, I, I saw it. I saw you going through it. I didn't know you as well then as I do now. But how'd that feel? Just, how'd was, that, I want to go yeah. below the, the what you do, but, but yeah. what'd that feel like doing that? It was scary. Um, the biggest reason it was scary was because um, – it was uh, it was too scary for two reasons. One is it was scary because I was basically saying to everyone, look, um, I, I haven't been hiding any of this from you, but I've been um, scrambling to protect all of us from this. You know, we were we had had overhired and under earned or overhired and undersold or whatever it was. We were we were spending more than we were making. And I had you know stopped paying myself and had started funding the business in an effort to keep payroll rolling and to keep the business floating and to keep the keep the band together. And so there was a an embarrassment for me to 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 say, look, I'm not asking for accolades here, but um I can't do it anymore. It was almost like I was embarrassed that I had run out of steam and could see that I was going to I had two kids, I had a you know family to support. It didn't matter. I still felt bad that I hadn't I wasn't able to carry that water any further on my own. And it was silly of me to try to carry it by myself because we'd been working as a team and um, it, was, it wasn't that any one person like me was responsible. We had, we had been failing as a team. And um, so that was one thing that was scary. It was just kind of admitting defeat 
um, and that I was exhausted. The other thing that was scary is that I knew that a number of the people on the team were eminently employable elsewhere, period. They could have found a job in five minutes. In fact, a couple of them had come to me in a similar kind of situation years before when the company they'd been working with hadn't been doing so well. And they called me and I hired them almost on the spot. And so I knew that the next phone call these guys could have made who weren't in the office that day, but who joined us remotely, mm-hmm. I knew the next phone call could have been to their future boss. And, um, and uh, at the same time, um, I was hopeful because I believed, um, as, I, as I had believed from day one before we even discovered Open Book, that, um, you know, that, that first of all, you start with the information. You know, if you don't have facts, you have nothing upon which you can um, push against to, to kind of make change. And so I felt like it was incumbent that we share the actual facts of what was going on. And I don't think the numbers there were a big surprise, but laying them all out like I did then, which was basically here's where we are and here's what looks like if we keep doing what we're doing. And here's all the different scenarios I can think of where it gets worse, it gets marginally better. Um, or it gets really better. And we kind of had, I think it called like doomsday scenario and the just mm-hmm. stop losing money scenario and the make a little bit of our money back scenario and the big, hairy, audacious goal scenario. And um, But they were all sort of like six months year to date and then six months projected. And for me, uh, the critical inflection point there was as scary as that was, um, was that the conversation ended with what can each person here do individually to drive those numbers that we need to improve? And we had conversations about like what could sales do and what could accounting do and what could development do and what could project management do and what could even reception and, and you know, uh, operations do. And each group left that meeting and started taking action. You and I started a whole series of, you know, rate increase letters and, and management of those clients and pruning of clients who were poor performing for us. And somehow the developers started billing more billable hours each week without breaking their necks. And um, we started closing some more business and increasing our rates and they started billing some more and we started collecting some of the money that we were owed that was sitting out there too long and improving our accounts receivable. And it wasn't any one singular action by any one individual person on the team. It was all those actions in concert together, all of which were in many ways discordant or separate or practicing, you know, in their own little practice rooms. When we came together, it was like a symphony. And Together, we moved the needle. We literally overnight started generating, you know, um, marginal profitability each month compared to what had been a series of losses month over month over month over month. And as you already know, you know, we, we came out of 2009 making back a little bit of the money we'd lost, but still under. Um, and then we hit 2010 and it was like we exploded. You know, we planned to make X profit and we made 1.5 times X profit. And yeah. um, I think there was something about just kind of putting the facts on the table, taking the risk with everybody to say, here's how bad it could get. And then asking everybody, what do you think we all individually can do or collectively can do to make this better? And having no one in that room leave without a sense that they had something they could do. It wasn't like, well, that's his problem. It was everybody's problem. And, and, um, it reminded me again, back to 13, you know, when I, 13 was, I think my last year at, uh, at sleepaway camp. And in Sleepaway Camp, you've heard this story as well. Um, one of the things we did at my Sleepaway Camp was something called War Canoe. And they were these like 30 foot long, I don't even remember, they were huge. There was like 30 to 45 kids in this canoe. So these really long wooden canoes, 20 something kids on one side and 20 something kids on the other side. Each had a wooden paddle. And you got a guy in the front who's, you know, um, and, uh, pounding the sides and kind of getting the stroke going with everybody and getting them everyone in time. And you got a guy in the back who's holding the big paddle, kind of our rudder. And over the course of the summer, these tribes of kids basically learn how to row the canoe in concert with each other like an oiled machine. And in the beginning, it's ugly. 
It's really ugly. It's clattering and splashing and arguing, and everyone's trying to figure out, is it the guy in the front's fault, or is it the newest kids at the back's fault, and, and so on. And, but by the time you get to the end of the summer, these tribes of kids, you know, ages 6 to 13, 7 to 13, can move these canoes and a breakneck speed across the water and compete in these head-to-head races that are just um, nail-biting, you know, intense because they are operating like a well-oiled machine at like high, you know, um, turnover. It's just amazing. And so there was something about that. I think before that time in 2009, we were capable, but we were clacking oars and making Mm -hmm. splashes. And every once in a while, we'd get a good rhythm in and then we'd knock it all over the place. And after that inflection point, we found our rhythm and we were just cruising. And it hasn't been smooth sailing. We've run into choppy water and we've had you know, changes of staff and had to train up new people. But we have consistently since then been able to perform or understand why we're underperforming and to fix it and keep performing. And, um, and that was really exciting. That sort of, I think it was necessary. It was medicine we had to take. Yeah. And I'm really kind of glad it happened. Yeah. So this is a question I've always had. Uh, since since 2009, you went you you funded the business yourself. You're not taking a paycheck for a long time, knowing the authentic person you are and always being the same guy. And that's I can attest to that. Um, uh, you show up at home, at work, and everywhere you are, and knowing your family, being the lovely people that they are, and, and you'll you'll find no lovelier for for our guests here. Um, but when you had to go home and say, "Hey, I'm." Uh, I'm going to keep Skeleton Key afloat, and uh, we're not going to have an income for an indetermined amount of time. Um, and realizing we got a few minutes left here, and this is this may be a big question, but what's how's that go at home? That's not a that's the worst of the conversations in my mind. I mean, to me personally, but I what how's that for you? That's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think. 2009. That would have been Henry. Um, just trying to pin which kid was born when. Um, you know, I want to say at that point. Um, so Sally, my wife, was um, you know had been working when we had our first two, but by then was working full time taking care of our boys, and uh, and we had a third one arriving. You know, that August. Um, I think that was even the summer that you went to San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken, um, for the conference. So. Um, I want to say that, you know, uh, Sally, over the years, uh, at this time and others, even on small little things like losing a critical person or, you know, trying to hire someone and and losing out to a competitor or something, has expressed um, mild concern when I come home and I'm troubled by something. Um, She'll ask me all the questions that are exaggerated and scary, like, does this mean this is going to happen? Are we going to lose that? Or do I need to go back to work, et cetera, and so forth? And she works really hard, so it's kind of a silly question. But um, but never have I ever felt in her doubt that I can't do something to fix it or that, um, or that the team that I had assembled couldn't get it done. And so, um, I think, I think I really owe her a debt is that she has, she's always been candid and always just shot from the hip and voiced her concerns and fears and didn't kind of pull her punches and hold that stress in. I mean, maybe she held some in, but she certainly shared it with me and I really appreciated that. And, and it was stressful to hear because I didn't always have straight answers. I often had like, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. Or I'm hopeful, but I can't say for sure. Um, and she was always offering to help. She said, can I come in? Should I come work for you? Should I come help at the office? Is there something I can do? But I think it was just, again, just like with Oliver, being willing to be candid 
not pull her punches, um, willing to shoot from the hip and tell me what she was really thinking. And then, um, and then just letting me be stressed about it or letting me kind of vent about it or, um, or trusting in, in me and not, you know, doubting that, um, that my team and the people I had assembled who she knows really well and liked um, could get it done. And so I don't think I was really scared about going home and doing it. I think I felt like I've always – one of the things I really cherish is that I, um, I can be myself and therefore share the same things with her that I share here. I don't have to kind of close things down or open up certain things. I can be consistent. And so it was just an extension of the conversation I was already having at the office. It was just with someone who's you know, a different type of confidant and, and mentor to me. Yeah. Well, that's – I, I think that's a blessing. I, that, that would be really, really hard for me. So, uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Man, this has been uh, – I feel like I learned some things. I certainly learned some things that I didn't know. I hope the audience enjoys this as well. If folks are interested in – and we didn't talk about you know too much about what Skeleton Key does or BrightSource does. But if folks are interested in learning more about that, talking to you about any of these things or – you know, how to have a, a, a custom application built or IT support. How do they get a hold of you? Uh, the best way is to probably just email me. It's just mark at skeletonkey.com or um, look up Mark Richman, R-I-C-H-M-A-N, here in St. Louis. You'll find a, a Frank Sinatra impersonator named Mark Richman also in St. Louis. That is not me. Um, I'm the IT guy in St. Louis. <laughs>